A reading from John, chapter 1, verses 29 through 42. The next day, John saw Jesus coming toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. This is he of whom I have said, After me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for his purpose I came baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to Israel. And John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend and remain, this is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and I have borne witness that this is the Son of God. The next day again, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked by and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him say this, and they followed Jesus. Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What are you seeking? And they said to him, Rabbi, which means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, And they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed Jesus was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He first found his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which means the Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which means Peter. The word of the Lord. Today we start in John 1, which is the beginning of the Gospel of John. Um, And John does a great job of using language and rhetoric to prove his points. And it it borrows from this idea of famous first lines. So I want to play a little game with you all this morning just to start off with. I'm going to read an opening line from a novel, and you're going to tell me what novel it comes from. Okay, so famous first lines of a novel. First one's pretty easy, although I've never read it. Call me Ishmael. Moby Dick, that's right. Second one's uh, long, but um, you, you might be able to pull this one out as well. The famous first lines of, an, of, of a novel. It was the best of times. It was the worst of times. It was the age of wisdom. It was the age of foolishness. It was Tale of Two Cities. Thank you. Okay, try this one, smarty pantses. There was a boy called Eustace Clarence Scrub, and he almost deserved it. I'm hearing more voices down here. Come on, adults. What are, the Voyage of the Dawn Treader, one of the C.S. Lewis books. Now, it's not just books that often start with these famous first lines. Sometimes it's films, and it's the opening words that are said by a main character or at the beginning of the film. So how about famous first words from films? You name the film, I'll give you the the sentence. Here's the easy one. Rosebud. Delay, but you got it, good. Next one. Citizen Kane. Come on, Corky. Please, sir, I want some more. Oliver. Oliver Twist from Oliver. Um, A little more challenging one. The world is changed. I feel it in the water. I feel it in the earth. I smell it in the air. Come on, guys. You didn't get that? 
These guys did. Lord of the Rings, that's the opening of the first of the Fellowship, the Fellowship of the Rings. It's Lady Galadriel, the Elven Queen. And here's my favorite opening line from the film. The key to faking out the parents is the clammy hands. It is a good, non-specific symptom. I'm a big believer in it. Ferris Bueller from Ferris Bueller's Day Off. You want to fake out your pa- parents? The clammy hands. It's a symptom that means something, I'm sure. Good first lines draw us in. They're what cause us to read the next page or watch the next five minutes. But first lines also serve to set the direction or the tone of a book or of a movie, saying, we're going in this direction. And sometimes they even anticipate the ending right from that very first sentence. Ben Witherington is a New Testament scholar who focuses on ancient rhetoric. He wrote... First words of a protagonist in an ancient drama are highly significant. So even in the ancient world, the first words uttered by the main hero are the most profound. You should stop and say, what's going on here? What should I look for the rest of the way? And what are the first words of the protagonist in the Gospel of John? It's Jesus saying, What are you seeking? The disciples of John the Baptist have turned and started following Jesus. Jesus turns, sees them following him, and says, What are you seeking? Now, on a very literal level, the question is uh, is a straightforward question. It's, hey guys, why are you walking so close to me? Do you want to be my disciples or something? Are you following after me for a reason? But it's important to recognize who's speaking and what's going on here. What's happened is disciples of John the Baptist have left him to follow Jesus. Now, John the Baptist often gets a short shrift in our churches these days, but he was a very powerful and influential prophet in his day and age. So much so that in our passage, the leaders of Israel come out to see what's going on because they realize this guy is starting a movement. He was considered by the people to be a prophet on par with Elijah, Ezekiel, maybe even Moses. They wondered, could John the Baptist be the Christ? If we were talking about him nowadays, we'd talk about him as the founder of a religion, on par with Siddhartha Gautama or Muhammad or a great influential leader like Gandhi. John the Baptist was no shrinking violet. He was one of the most influential people in his day and age. And yet... At the height of his power and his influence, his disciples leave him to follow Jesus. Why? John the Baptist tells us very clearly, I'm not the Christ. I'm not the Messiah. I came here to prepare the way for him, to point people to him, but I am not him. The fact that at the height of his popularity and influence, John not only allows his own disciples to follow Jesus, but encourages them to do so, says a lot about John the Baptist and his humility. How many of us, or how many political leaders, leaders in general, at the height of their power and influence would step down and say, somebody else needs to take over? It says a lot about John the Baptist's humility, but it says even more about who Jesus is. John the Baptist recognized that Jesus was more than a prophet. 
more than a religious leader. He was something altogether different. No matter how powerful you are, he's the one you need to bow before. You see, John the Baptist calls for repentance and points people to God. Jesus comes along and offers forgiveness and brings God to people. So, when the writer of the Gospel of John has Jesus uttering these first words, what are you seeking? There's two meanings to it. On the first level, Jesus is just talking to these guys following him. Hey, what are you guys after? But on another level, this is the powerful Savior saying, in a more general way, what is it that you are seeking? And it's a call to anyone reading the gospel to answer that question for themselves. Think about it. If a protagonist, if a hero has an opening line and it's important, and if that hero is something more than just a a storybook novel character, then the words he utters are incredibly powerful. And in this case, the person uttering the words is incredibly powerful. John the writer of the gospel, gives us his own opening lines, the opening lines of the novel, if you would, before Jesus speaks, to tell us who is about to speak. He tells us this in John chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then goes on to say, and the Word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. The one who's about to speak is God, God in flesh. And then he doubles it up by having John the Baptist for a few verses describe Jesus. John the Baptist says this about Jesus. He is the lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. Not only that, but before I was, he was. He was before me, meaning Jesus was timeless and eternal. He goes on to say, I baptize with water. Jesus has come to baptize with the Holy Spirit. He's the one who gives and sends out the Holy Spirit to those who need it. And he finishes by saying, this is the very Son of God. So when we read the words, what are you seeking? We're meant to hear all the authority of God himself saying to all of us who would read this passage, what are you seeking? What are you after? It's not just Jesus speaking to these two guys behind him. It's the gospel of John through Jesus, God himself saying to each of us, before you read this book, answer this. What are you after? What are you seeking? What is your aim in life? You know, if we ask that question just generally of people, you'd find a lot of different answers, and they might not be able to answer it themselves, but if you watch people's lives, you could see what they're after. What is it people are seeking? They're seeking success, career recognition, hitting the, the, the pinnacle. Some people are, are seeking love, and they seek it in friendships, in family, in romance, in sex. A lot of people are simply seeking to avoid discomfort, to avoid suffering, to avoid tragedy, as if you could do such things. And so they won't even get on the beltway because, you know, I mean, right about now it would be difficult to be on there, so I'm just going to stay at home. And we live our whole life protecting ourselves from would-be challenges. When I was in high school, 
my main aim was to get to the weekend because I really just wanted to have fun on the weekend. If you said, what is your goal? It would probably be Friday, Saturday, and a little bit of Sunday just to get there, have some fun. You know, all of these reasons, all these things that we tend to seek is, is part of the reason why the celebrity culture is so fun to watch. And so shows like Entertainment Tonight or TMZ or People Magazine, they're incredibly popular. Why? Because you get to watch celebrities live out the very things we ourselves want to be seeking after. They're pursuing success and popularity and beauty and fame and fun and money and love or some version thereof. But of course, they are a great example of what it looks like to pursue these things by themselves. Because usually they're just train wrecks waiting to happen, which is why we buy the next issue of People magazine and turn on TMZ again. We know it's going to happen again. And in many ways, it does serve as a good warning. Of course, if you ask the question, if Jesus was here and asked the question, what is it you're seeking? Many of us would say, I don't know. I'm just living my life. And we get annoyed with people who ask such questions of us. Let me turn it a different direction. If we're still talking about the idea of seeking, why might we turn to Jesus? Why might we show up at church? What is it we're after? What is it we're seeking? And I suppose in this culture, you might find some people who show up in a church because, well, they've had a therapist, and then they went to Pilates, and they've had a life coach, and they figured Jesus might be a good combination of all of those. Other people, and this is pretty common, will start going back to church because, well, they had kids, and they want their kids to get some morality and religion. Some come to church in order to feel better about themselves. Others, who are a little more masochistic, come to feel worse about themselves. Jesus asks, what about you? What are you seeking? And in his words, if you let them really sit, they're asking this sort of question. Do you really want me? Do you really want what I have to offer? Some people do. Some of us in this room know what it is to seek the truth and to find a savior. To look back on years and years, maybe even decades of looking for something, hungering for more, and eventually finding Jesus. As part of our baptisms, we're going to hear a story about one of our people that are going to be baptized that tells just that. Years of seeking and finding a savior. And Jesus asks us, though, what are you seeking? Are you ready and willing to deal with the implications of Jesus' question? Remember, as you read through the Gospel of John and as we're in it the next three months, what you're going to find is Jesus' life and Jesus' claims demand the sort of surrender and allegiance to him that we tend to reserve for ourselves alone. He wants it all. He wants all of us. So Jesus asks the two disciples, what are you seeking? And they respond, well, Jesus, where are you staying? And again, on the literal level, 
these two disciples of John the Baptist that are now following Jesus are saying, hey, can we just come along with you? We want to hang out. We want to spend some time with you. And this desire at its root is to be with, to get to know, to understand Jesus. This is the basic root desire of all people who are truly seeking him. Jesus, where are you going? Where are you staying? Can I be with you? But of course, whenever we read something in the Gospel of John, it's, it's often with a double meaning to it. And here, John uses a term, staying, that he uses again and again throughout the Gospel of John and in the letter of 1 John. It's the word abide or remain. It's often translated that way. Where are you staying? Where are you abiding? Again and again, John says, we need to abide in Jesus, remain with Jesus. He tells us this through Jesus' own words. In John 6, Jesus says, whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him and has eternal life. In John 8, there's that famous phrase that's often on libraries of of universities or in other buildings at universities that says, the truth will set you free. But funny that it's always divorced from the context, which is this. Jesus says, if you abide in my word, you are truly my disciples and you will know the truth and the truth will set you free. Truth is not truth apart from Jesus and his words. What you need to know to know the truth and to be free truly is not just knowledge, it's Jesus, who he is and what he has said and done. And in John 15, 5, Jesus says, I am the vine, you are the branches. Whoever abides in me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit, for apart from me you can do nothing. Abide in Jesus. Depend on Jesus like a branch depends on the trunk for survival. Jesus is saying, let me fill and nourish you like food and water fill and nourish you. The gospel of John is clear. We need Jesus more than anything else in life. More than 45 minutes of exercise more than spinach and quinoa, more than air. Jesus, we read in his own words and through the Gospel of John, is the source of truth and freedom. He is the place to find the fruitful life and he is the only way to eternal life. In other words, when we ask and answer the question, what are you seeking? Everything we're truly after truth, freedom, a fruitful life, eternal life, everything we're truly after is found when we abide in Jesus and nowhere else. The disciples of John asked Jesus, Jesus, where are you staying? And we could ask the same sort of question. Where is it that you see Jesus abiding around you? Where have you tasted, seen, or experienced Jesus? With what sort of people? Be with those sorts of people. Go to those sorts of places. If you want Jesus, go where you see and sense him. For me, it is opening the scriptures. It's time in prayer. 
It's time with good friends who also are abiding in Jesus. It's being in a small group like we have starting in a few weeks. For me, it's those times of thought and prayer when I'm sitting by the fire or out on my back patio. Where do you see Jesus residing? Go there. Be filled up. And to anyone who's seeking, Jesus says what he says to these two disciples, come and see. Come and see. Come on, guys. Come and see. Come and know and experience me. Towards the end, these two disciples go to be with Jesus for the day. One of them is Andrew, whose brother is Simon. He goes and finds his brother Simon and says, Simon, we've stayed with this guy, Jesus, the one John the Baptist was pointing to, and he is the Messiah. He is the Christ. He's the one we've been looking for. So they bring Simon to Jesus. Jesus looks at Simon, not just looks at his outward appearance, looks into his heart, which is what Jesus does with all of us, at the root of the man. And he says, so you are Simon, the son of John, but you shall be called Cephas, which means Peter, the rock. Now, we often rename when it comes to nicknames. And nicknames are either terms of derision or terms of endearment. My dad tells me of some boy in their neighborhood who they called blockhead or squarehead. I can't remember which it was. I think that was more of a derision one, but I could be wrong. I had some friends in the past whose nicknames were Tiny, The Doggy, and The Hobbit. Now, The Hobbit was a good friend of mine who was shorter and stockier, He lived in the basement room of his parents' house, so he was sort of underground, and he had hairy feet. So he he was the hobbit, and we loved him. It was a term of endearment. Those terms of endearment, when we rename somebody, actually cultivate intimacy and relationship and connection. In the Old Testament, God goes about to rename people. And yes, on one level, it is a level of relational intimacy that God is establishing with the person. But on another level, it is covenantal. It is establishing the sort of relationship that changes the person and calls them to something new. Abram was renamed Abraham. Jacob is renamed Israel. Along these lines, Jesus comes in and says, Simon, you are now the rock. He was indicating that Peter's calling, his future, his identity are now to be tied up in and through and with Jesus. And what's fantastic about this is Jesus sees an identity and future for Peter that he has no way of being able to see for himself. Peter was anything but a rock of a man. But who is it that's speaking this new name to to Peter? It's the word of God. The word of God that we read about in John 1, 3, that says, all things were made through him, and without him was not anything made that was made. God Almighty speaks creation into existence. This very God enters humanity in the person of Jesus Christ and speaks new creation for Peter. You're not a rock, but I'm telling you, you're a rock. And when Jesus speaks, 
it happens. Jesus is recreating Simon into Peter. It's the same thing God does with all of us who enter into faith in him. It's why we read these terms that are describing believers in Jesus Christ. And they're terms like this, holy, blameless, righteous, a kingdom of priests, children of God. We may not feel like priests. We may not look blameless or righteous or feel very holy. But if God says it about us, it's more true about who we are than we think, feel, or imagine about ourselves. When God speaks truth about us, it is the truth. You may not feel like a rock, but I'm calling you a rock and that's what you are. You may look on the outside far from holy, but I've declared you as holy and righteous as you will be in heaven even now, because that's how I view you. The one who speaks has the power to create it in us. And it takes time, but Peter, the rock, is brought into existence. It's interesting, this is a bookend to the end of the Gospel of John. At the beginning, John chapter 1, Simon is called and renamed as Peter. Then, over the course of the Gospel, Peter unfolds as somebody who at one moment is confessing Jesus as the Christ and at the very next moment is being told, get behind me, Satan. Right before Jesus is crucified, it's Peter who denies Jesus three times. But in the very last chapter of John, the bookend, Jesus forgives, reinstates Peter, and commissions him, sending him out as the rock. But in all of this, The focus is not on Peter. It's on Jesus. Jesus, the one who has the power to call and to rename. And not just to call and rename, but to remake us, to resurrect us. Because it's not just Peter that Jesus is doing this for. Jesus calls all of us. He wants to renew, remake, restore and resurrect all of us. And so what's the prerequisite to being a disciple of Jesus? Gifting and intelligence? Recognition by peers for your career success? What do you have to do to be a disciple? Have a happy marriage and good kids? Be generous to charity? Is a prerequisite for being a disciple church attendance? No. It's not. How are the disciples of John, as they start following Jesus, described? Think about some of the phrases that are used to describe what they do. They follow Jesus, meaning they're willing to cast their lot with Jesus and go where he goes. They seek Jesus. In other words, they desire and hunger for what Jesus has to offer. They come and see and stay or abide with Jesus. They want to be with Jesus, to know Jesus, to experience Jesus. In other words, the 
only prerequisite for being a disciple, a follower of Jesus, is desire and willingness. So, in the coming weeks, as we read and listen and think and talk about the Gospel of John, the author of John wants us to ask ourselves through Jesus' words, what is it that I'm truly seeking? What do I want with Jesus? And am I ready for what I might find? Let's pray. Lord Jesus Christ, through whom all things came into being, who has given us life and truth and freedom and forgiveness in him, I pray that you would remake us, renew us and restore us, calling us to your own and giving us new life in you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. Thine own, it shall be thine.